it's a privilege this morning to introduce our friend who many of you know, Bob Jones. I'll ask him to come on up. He's going to break the word for us. It, um, him cutting it a little close made him even more handsome when I finally saw him than normal. So <laughs> happy to see you, brother. Uh, if you all know Bob, many of you do. Bob's a good friend of our church, having served us and teaching us as a body, but also having served a lot of folks in this church by applying biblical truth to counseling both in diagnosing and in offering biblical solutions. And, you know, the term biblical counseling is used fairly loosely, but um, Bob has actually given biblical counsel to many of us, and so we, we appreciate that. So I'm going to pray for you, brother, and then ask you to break the word. Father, thank you for faithful men that you've gifted to serve your body. Thank you that you show your love for the body by doing that. I pray for my brother as he opens up the scriptures to us. I pray you would give him uh, clarity, and that you would give us attentive hearts and ears to listen uh, with, a, with a mind toward obedience and not just hearing. And I pray that uh, through the breaking and the receiving of your word that you would be glorified and that we would have more joy in following you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Always a privilege for me to be with you folks. This is uh, one of my favorite church by far in the area here, um, by far. I love your pastor, Tom, and uh, he asked me if I would come and, and speak, and he asked me if I would say, uh, would continue somewhat some themes on relationships. So I have chosen a passage, Colossians chapter 3. I did cut it close today because I had an earlier responsibility. Uh, I emailed with Luke and... Uh, he asked me if I knew Ray, and uh, what I wanted to say, yeah, I think I remember Ray. He's that short little guy with the long hair, <laughs> but I didn't know if Luke knew that I would have been kidding on that one, so um, you were one short. <laughs> and you may have once had long hair, second trimester. But yes, Luke, I do know, I do know, Ray. Um, it's good, really good to be here. I, I, let me tell you one thing I've just appreciated about Pastor Tom. He's, he's come over and uh, done some ministry at our church occasionally with our interns, and he's a hit. Our, 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 our interns love, love him, and uh, he's always a big hit. And I just appreciate uh, the combination of, of care with uh, wisdom that comes together. It's, it's, it's not common. And let me tell you, as, as one who's had some experience working with pastors for many years um, in church conciliation work, for example, um, God's been good to you as a church. So it's great to be here. Did my friend Tom make it today? There he is. Okay. Here's one other thing before I get started. I want you to tell Tom Mercer this. Tom Mercer may have never had someone travel all the way from New Jersey down to hear him preach here. So you tell Tom that I'm one up on him on that one. <laughs> one of my dearest friends for many years, a man who hired me when I was a teenager and uh, discipled me in informal ways is uh, visiting today, Tom and, 
and his wife Barbara back there. So uh, they're in the area. They didn't come to hear me preach. Well, they maybe came from a hotel a mile away to hear me preach, but are here for another reason. So welcome, Tom. Uh, I want us to turn to this Colossians 3 passage, Colossians 3. One of the things that I least like to do is something I have to do. And I have to do it virtually every day of my life. And I don't like doing it. I hate doing it, as a matter of fact. And I only do it because I have to do it. And that is to get dressed. If I had my druthers, I would stay in my pajamas or my sweatpants or my gym shorts all day. But... uh, That's not something I'm allowed to do in my culture. I just don't like to get dressed. Um, Think of the waste of time. To have to pick out clothes and put them on to make sure they look right. Think of the money you spend. Some of you spend a lot of money. Now we're at the back to the school season, and some of you have just spent $100, $200 on your own clothes if you're a teenager or your folks have, uh, you've, you've, you've weaseled some money out of them to pay for it, or you've uh, gone ahead and outfitted your own family. What a waste of money and time to have to do this every day. I just hate getting dressed. However, there's something else I hate probably even more than getting dressed. It's picking out the clothes. Do any of you dislike picking out clothes? got to stand there. What should I wear today? Now, God solved that problem for me by giving me a wife. And now, ladies, don't feel an obligation. Husbands, don't obligate your wives to be what kind of wife my wife is. My wife loves to do this. This is going to sound like slavery to some of you. It's not. She loves to do this. At least I think so. <laughs> she's, she's led me to believe that. And that is she actually likes, she picks out clothes for me every day. Um. And so I know what to wear. And, uh, because if she doesn't do that, I really get messed up. I, I, I'll put a brown belt on with black pants. I mean, I'll do all sorts of combo things that probably aren't, 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 aren't right according to etiquette. I want us to think today about this Colossians text. And what you see in this Colossians text is a command by God to put on a certain kind of clothing. And the good news here is that God has picked it out for you already. You do not have to guess what kind of clothing you're to put on every day as a Christian. It's not left up to you to have to figure it out. God has told us right here in Colossians chapter 3 what it looks like to uh, look like Jesus Christ, to put the attire, the clothing of grace. I want us to think about this Colossians 3, 12-14 passage. I want, to th- I want you to think with me, about a very simple concept going on in this passage. Very simple. Grace in, grace out. Grace in, grace out. Those of you who perhaps have known the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ over the years might think of inhale and exhale, and others have taught that as well. Breathe in, breathe out. I'm watching those great Olympic swimmers doing their freestyle, and they're they're breathing in, and then they're breathing out, and they're breathing in. There's a rhythm of grace going on here. And this passage is a perfect picture. It's not the only place. In fact, I, see, I think you see it throughout the Scriptures. 
grace in, receiving grace from God, and then expressing grace to other people. What is the grace in picture here? Well, we could start with verse 1 and see that in verse 1, God says that he has given us a brand new identity and a brand new station in life, a brand new place where we have been raised with Christ, where uh, we belong to Christ, where our life is hidden with Christ in God. And you see that in verses 1 through 4 there. I'm not going to unpack that passage. I want to focus on 12 through 14. You also, if you walk through 5 through 11, you'd see more pictures of God's grace toward you. Particularly, look at verse 10, where Paul says that if you belong to Jesus Christ, you have put on the new self, the new man, that you are already a new person. God, in Jesus, has made you brand new. You are not now what you once were. And he says that that image is being renewed. God is active right now. So, so he's, he's taken us from death and brought us into life. He's taken us from, from um, uh, uh, um, darkness into the place of light. He's changed us. We're new people. All this is grace in. And then we see in verse 12 further descriptions of this grace that we have received. You'll notice in verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, chosen, holy, loved, and look down in verse 14, the call to bear with, to forgive, because what? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Chosen, holy, Loved, forgiven. Chosen, holy, loved, forgiven. Chosen, holy, loved, forgiven. That's who you are in Jesus Christ. Chosen. Nothing will humble you more than a recognition that all that you are in Jesus Christ is nothing to do with what you have done to get there. Nothing will, will flatten your pride more than the recognition that it is not about you and it never was. It was always and only the grace of God that chose you, the electing grace of God. Nothing good in you that would lead God to incline toward you. It is all about the fact that in eternity past, God chose you to be saved through Christ. Whatever you believe about election, the passage is quite clear. You are chosen. You are elect. And there is no doctrine more comforting for the soul of the Christian who is is questioning sometimes, am I in or am I out? Does God really love me or doesn't he? And one of the great assurances of the faith is the fact that God in eternity past had you in mind and has chosen you and you belong to Jesus Christ because of the electing grace of God. Paul says in verse 12 that God possesses you, that you are holy. The word holy in the Bible is also the same word for saint or holiness or sanctification. All those words actually are all the same Greek word in the New Testament here. 
And what those words all say is this. You are set apart. You belong to God in a special way. One of the best writers on this, for those of you who are students, is, is a book called uh, Possessed by God, a, a New Testament um, Theology of Sanctification, the Doctrine of Christian Life and Growth. Possessed by God. That's the summary here. Now, in our behavior, we should act like God, and we should behave a certain way. But the primary sense of holiness in the Scripture is not the way you act. That's a secondary sense. is derived from the primary sense, and it's vital, required, and important. But the primary sense is this. You've been set apart. You belong to him. You've been taken, and, and, and he possesses you. You have an identity. You're a son or a daughter. And it makes a world of difference if you look at yourself without identity. He possesses you, and he loves you. Even when you mess up, he loves you. He, he even knows, he even loves you when, when you, you, you do the worst possible things. And, and even though uh, he knows the best about, uh, the worst about you, he still loves you and has chosen you. Not because you've been a good boy or girl. We haven't been. Check the list to see if you're naughty or nice. We end up on the naughty side in God's, according to God's law. But God in Christ loves us. And then God has forgiven you. And I'll say more about that when we come to that part of the clothing we're to put on. So all this is the grace received. All this is what God has given us. Grace in, breathe in your identity and your uh, work of God. You belong to him. You are his. How then should we live in light of that? What does it look like then to see the grace from you come out as you breathe in and breathe out this grace? Let's talk about this, this grace. I told you that the clothing that God gives us to wear is clothing he has picked for us. And there are, there are eight pieces of clothing here, eight garments. One writer calls this the garments of grace. Uh, there's eight of them here. Notice what they are. And what I want you to see is the connection between these attitudes and actions of grace toward each other and your identity as a chosen, holy, love, forgiven son or daughter of the living God. First then, clothe yourself with what? Your, your text might say put on. It's a clothing metaphor. Clothe yourselves with compassion. What is compassion? It's, it's that inward, deeply felt emotional response of pity when we see someone who's suffering. Uh, and, and, and it carries with it a desire to alleviate that suffering. It's not the pity that looks afar and says, oh, tis tis, too bad for them. No, true compassion is an inward response. You see suffering, and you want to do something, if you can, to help that particular person. So compassion sees the suffering, feels the, the struggle, the, 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 the inner stuff that you feel there, and wants to act if possible. And, of course, this is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. How has the compassion of God come to us? God saw us in our sin. He saw the suffering we face, the plight of our inward guilt, the plight of our wrong relationship with Him. And God has acted in Christ to show compassion. 
There are seven or eight places in the New Testament where it describes the compassion of Jesus Christ. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were uh, harassed and helpless. But you know, the compassion of God is not only aimed at people who are sinned against by other people. Here's a, here's a mind-blowing truth in, ne- in Nehemiah chapter 9. I won't take the time to take us and, and read it all, but I'll just comment on one aspect of Nehemiah chapter 9, where uh, the writer there, or the, the, the people of God, are confessing their sins. And they confess before God that our forefathers were arrogant and stiff-necked. But the text says this, but you are forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. God's compassion is not only towards those of us who are poor or struggling or suffering. Um, I, I, I hear of suffering every day in my pastoral ministry. Um, just dear young couple, just a couple days ago, um, an ectopic pregnancy. Uh, loss of their first, first, first child. Um, God's compassion is not only for that. God's compassion is even for those who have in your face sinned against God. And God sees the heart of rebellion. And God acts in Jesus Christ to rescue us. Clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with kindness. You think of kindness, you think of you know, doing some good deeds for people and things like that. Let, let, let's get to the root of it first. It is one of those major words in the Bible to describe God's saving work towards us. What God did for us in sending Jesus was an act of kindness. Don't think primarily of politeness. Don't think of niceness when you think of kindness. Think of something much richer than that. Think of kindness in terms of, of bestowing grace and love on people who don't deserve it. The kindness of God. In fact, God tells us, and uh, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 6, that we're to um, uh, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be the sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Kindness, even towards our enemy. You say, well, there's no way that person deserves that good treatment from me. There's no way that my ex-spouse deserves that kind of nice treatment after what he's done to me. There's no way that that person who has let me go from the job or that person who has ripped me off, who hasn't paid what he owed me in the job world, there's no way that person deserves kindness from me. And you know, my friend, I'll agree with you. Because kindness is not built on the character of the recipient. Kindness has to do with the character of you. First and foremost, the character of God. As God is clothing you with his clothing, then kindness is what I do because God deserves it and because of the character that he's forming in me. I mean, have you come to the end of your rope with someone? That's the last time I will. And and, and aren't you and I glad? God has never said that to you. This is the last time I'm going to do this. No, 
Or, or after all I've done, this is the thanks I get? You see, your kindness is built not on the other person's character, but on your character, as your character is being made into the image of the character of Jesus Christ. Compassion, kindness, humility. You know, the world today we live in, in one sense, is really no different than Paul's world. People uh, strutted back then. People had swagger back then. You know, in the sports world, as football season approaches, for those of you who are football fans, right, there's almost a, a, a positive quality about swagger. That's a team that has swagger about them. They've got pride about them. A world that admires self-assertion, one-upsmanship, pride. I, I'm best. After all, says the actress, I'm worth it. You hear that pride? Humility was not valued then, folks, and it's not valued now. In God, um, uh, it's not valued in our culture either. But you know what? God values it highly. Isaiah 66, you know these words? This is the one I esteem. He's got me on the edge of my seat. Who do you esteem, God? He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word trembles at my word humility what does it mean in our relationships and our marriages and our friendships with our roommates what does it mean it means preferring others above you philippians 2 do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility consider others better than yourselves Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But, what's the opposite? In humility, what? Consider others better than yourselves. I think of an elder in my church where I pastored in West Virginia. And uh, he would always hang around. He was always the last one in the potluck line. And I I began to notice it. It took me several years for my thicker head probably to, to, to get this. I finally noticed he always hung around at the end. And I one day asked him, he said, well, I just think it's right to let other people go before me. So uh, I stand convicted that day. The other advantage is you can do the cleanup at the end. You don't have to feel guilty. But that's, that's, a, that's, that's not the right motive. It's better to prefer others uh, above yourselves there. Uh, this past week, I had the privilege of doing some teaching with a group of pastors. There were nine pastors and two uh, chaplains. Uh, up in the Philadelphia area at a, at a seminary there doing some teaching. And uh, we got onto the subject of worship. Now, I have zero knowledge, honestly. So my conscience is so clean right now because I have zero knowledge if you all have ever had any worship battles or anything like that. So it's so fun for me to have that freedom. I really say that. I don't know if you've ever had a worship problem here. I do know this. I don't know any churches don't have some worship issues. You know, hymns, contemporary, screens, not screens, hymnals. Okay, I get it all. I have come to a strong conviction from talking with worship leaders and, and peacemaker folks. Uh, if I can be so uh, bold as to suggest, the one passage of Scripture that I think can unlock the worship wars that churches go through is Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Now, here's why. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. 
What if everyone in a congregation had this mindset? What I want the most is for you, my brother, sister, my friend, for you to have the optimum worship experience. For you to have the the best possible worship experience. And that would mean for you, whatever style, whatever types of lyrics and types of music and and beat or not beat and, and, and... and, and whatever uh, uh, um, instruments or non-instruments, if everyone in a particular congregation said, I want for my brother or sister have the optimum experience, as long as, as long as it's theologically sound, biblical truth, worship wars would, would be solved. I've had to practice that as I've been in churches that have had those struggles. You kind of shift a certain direction. and Some people don't like that style. I get all that. I've been there. I'm now 53. I'm starting to have my own desires for the old stuff. Uh, we had a young intern in our church not, re- not long ago who talked about we're going to sing an old song. It was a Getty song. I'm saying to myself, he's calling that old? Well, you get the point. If everyone sought to give my brother or sister optimum worship experience according to the style you prefer, we'd have a different kind of fight, wouldn't we? I'd be fighting for your style, and you'd be fighting for my style, and we'd work it out that way in whatever compromises would be wise. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. Gentleness is not weakness. Again, our culture would would talk about pride and strength strutting your stuff. But you see, a gentle person has power and chooses not to use it against that other person. Can I tell you who I'm talking about here? Above all, our Lord Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for what? I am what? Gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. I believe I challenged uh, um, the men on the weekend. I was here a couple months ago, or back in February or March, I think it was, with uh, our marriage uh, conference, that if our definition of manhood does not uh, factor in, does not include uh, gentleness and humility, then you have an unbiblical view of manhood. And you've... uh, uh, demasculinized Jesus Christ who says at the essence there's gentleness and humility in heart. And if you want to know whether women like humility and gentleness, ask some women. Don't go by what your buddies tell you. Find out what God says in the word here. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. Number five here, the fifth article of clothing in verse 12 still. Patience. Christ-like patience. There are different words in the Bible for patience. There's some words that have to do with enduring a trial, uh, a hardship, persevering under suffering, That's not the word here. This is a word that is used primarily in relational settings. 
This has to do with having a long fuse, not a short fuse, of bearing with in a long way people who don't change. Patience in the relational context. Self-restraint toward people who just provoke you, people who irk you, people who irritate you. You got people like that? Slow people. They just take a long time to make a decision. Come on, let's get on with it. Well, well, I'm just not sure that's what we should do. Those kind of people irk you. Or those people who make quick decisions. Come on, let's do it. Well, I'm not sure that. Well, that doesn't matter. What, maybe your spouse is that way. Maybe your friends are that way. Messy people. You got roommates? I, 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 I had roommates. I got a permanent roommate now, or a lifetime roommate. And she's better than my other roommates were. Thank you, Lord, for giving me a, a less messy roommate than, than Don and Joe and, and Rick. All right? But uh, they, people like that bother you? How about people who talk too much? Gabby people. You know any Gabby people? On and on and on and on. Um, how about drivers on the road? Come on, I got you on that one, right? <laughs> got to fess up at this point. You do get impatient with drivers, don't you? They don't turn. They, they turn without turn signals. That's probably one of my big beefs, right? Or they switch lanes or they don't switch lanes and they're slow in the left lane and I want to go and you're supposed to not pass on the right, but, you know, that kind of thing. I may have told this one to you before. I, I just love this so much. It's worth me repeating for those of you who haven't heard that. But I just love the illustration that, uh, that, that, that Paul Tripp, who's a writer and, and, and author and speaker, um, says, he says, you know, when I'm driving, here's my fantasy, that there's this, all this traffic in front of me. And my fantasy is that everyone in front of me will look in their rearview mirror and say, oh, honey, that's Paul Tripp behind us. And they would all just part, just over to the left or the right, and let me go right on through. That's what I want, too. That's a good fantasy to have, isn't it? <laughs> what is God trying to do? He's trying to teach me patience. And I, I'm preaching to myself right now. I, I realize that as I say these things, these are things I have to keep working on in my own life. I felt it the other day. I was in Philadelphia. We're driving around uh, like... Traffic, traffic, traffic. So glad I'm in North Carolina, not Philadelphia, by the way. Traffic, traffic, traffic there. But you know, you just, they hurry up. How come they don't go? And why do you have to do construction now? Why do you have to? It's an election year. Okay, I guess you have to do construction now or something like that, right? Clothe yourselves. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Worth memorizing these passages. There's, there's, there's a few more here. Go on to verse 13. Here's a word we don't use much anymore. Bear with each other or forbearance. Some of your translations might use the word forbearance. That word's kind of gone out of our English language, but it really shouldn't go out of our hearts. Bearing with one another. It's a synonym for this relational patience, to bear with one another. Have you stopped to wonder why this kind of passage in the New Testament? I mean, we're saved people. We're God's people. Were the Colossians actually having some conflicts with each other? Surely not. 
Why is there this repetition in all these letters of the scriptures calling us to be patient and bear with one another? Because there's an assumption that the people of God are not perfected yet. You have remaining sin. And guess what remaining sin does? It leaks out. And it comes into my life from you. And I bring it from me to you. And so the call is here to to bear with. The apostle assumes people are going to annoy you. He knows there will be problems in the church. Uh, He knows that in marriage relationships and all other relationships, there's going to be things that irritate you. So the call then is to bear with one another. And then going on into verse 13 at the end there. Bear with each other and forgive. Again, the assumption is that there will be offenses in the church of Jesus. That you will sin against each other. I love trying to have premarital training times with folks who are heading towards marriage. They, they come to me and they, they want to have a good marriage. And I really say to them, it is, there's probably no truth more important for you to learn than how to learn to forgive one another. And sometimes they're young in their relationship and everything's going real great. They haven't had any major fights. It's still premarital settings there. I always tell people, they don't have a fight. I want to try to pick one somehow. I want to try to rile them up in some way. I want you guys, so you don't have any differences of opinion. No, we get along well, you know, starry-eyed and everything's fine. And, yeah, well, you know, and so I try to push some things and kind of, kind of press them a little bit because they need to learn to deal with this. Because if you've been married for more than a weekend, you know this, right? You understand this. You understand that you will have conflicts with each other. And so learning how to forgive. And if you want a good book on Scripture about forgiveness, you're looking at it right here. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Look at the uh, end of 13 and 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Part and parcel of this whole package called redemption is forgiveness of our sins. Go on into chapter 2 and look at verses 13 and 14. And when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, your, 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 your remaining sin, your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. What did God do? He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. God in Jesus has forgiven you. And so the realism of the fact that people will sin against us in your own marriage, in your own friendships, um, you're going to get rid of that one roommate and get a new roommate. Great, a new roommate. Guess what? you're going to have conflicts with your new roommate. I, I, some of my single friends tell me, you know, I, I'm so excited about it. I'm going to get a new roommate. We're going to kind of get an apartment together. We're going to get a house together. You know, I've had these discussions with uh, guys and gals and, along these lines. Finally looking forward to getting rid of this old roommate and getting a new roommate. Guess what? There'll be conflict with your new roommate. And uh, the realism of this passage, the call here to... 
forgive. How? Takes us back to the gospel truth I've already mentioned earlier. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then clothe yourself finally, verse 14, with Christ-like love. Notice what Paul says here. And over all these virtues, he's named seven, right? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness. And now put on love, which, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love here is the picture here, I think, is, is love is a kind of outer garment that, that pulls together all the other garments. There's this one overarching garment called the garment of love here. Now, what's crucial for you when you think about these things? I want to hit this hard as we, as we close, and I want to make sure I have some time to pray for you here as well. Here's what I want you to really see. Those list of eight qualities, they are all relational qualities. Don't take those and wax eloquent and poetically and abstractly about virtues and we need to be compassionate people and we need to uh, be kind and so and so is a kind person. Think first and foremost of the relationship. God doesn't want us to be kind. He wants us to show kindness. God doesn't merely want us to be compassionate, to be compassionate. He wants us to be to compassion each other, if I can make up a verb here, right? To show compassion, to do compassion. These are all relational things so that the body of Christ would indeed be all that God has called the body of Christ to be. These are not stoic ideals. These are not uh, desert island virtues. These are relational virtues for us to bear with one another. And so again... Your chosen, holy, love forgiven. Who cares, really, if so-and-so snubbed you? God Almighty has chosen you. Who cares if the coach benched you? The person didn't pick you for the lead role in the play. You have to play second violin and not first violin. So how much does that really matter when God Almighty has chosen you? When God Almighty has, has owned you and possessed you? So-and-so snubbed me. So-and-so, they don't care about me. So-and-so, they don't greet me on Sunday when I come to worship. I said hi and they didn't say hi back. So-and-so never returned my phone call. God returns your phone calls every day, you see? Because He loves you in Jesus Christ. He he, he loves you and he, and, he, and he possesses you and he forgives you of all your sins, even the sins of anger and bitterness towards those who don't return your phone calls and those who snub you, you see. It's all grace in, leading to grace out. Let me pray for us and ask God to help each of us in this room understand the grace of God given in Christ to those who belong to him, offered in Christ to those who do not belong to him. If you don't know Jesus today, this is what's promise to you come to that savior the lord jesus christ let me pray for us our father we thank you for the work you have done the work of initiating of taking us from darkness into light and from death to life and seating us 
with your son Christ and hiding our life in him and that we are just totally wrapped up in Jesus Christ and identified with him. Thank you for that. Thank you for the renewal work as uh, verse 10 talks about that you've given us, that you've already begun to make us more like Jesus. You're already fitting us with these clothing, uh, these clothing articles. Thank you for choosing me and choosing each one here who belongs to Christ. Thank you for owning us and possessing us and, and protecting and guarding us. Thank you for uh, your, your, your promise of love for us. Thank you for your forgiveness of our sins. And would you help us as we've received grace, as we breathe in the grace of God, would you help us to, to exhale grace, to show forth grace, to demonstrate grace, that the grace out would look very clear and powerful uh, so that Jesus would be honored, that in our lives with each other here in this room, in this church, in our friendships and family life, that we would indeed show compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. Father, you alone can do this through your spirit. We're pleading that. We're pleading you for that. And we ask in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.